The following episode contains depictions of murder and cannibalism. You have been a hunter in these bitter, cold, frigid woods your entire life. Since your father passed on what his father passed on to you, you have been a trapper, but the traps this year are all empty, and your hunger grows, worse than ever before. You know if worse comes to worse, you can always return to the village where emergency rations await your family. But something else is not right. Aside from hunger, you feel a presence, something nearby, something huge and monstrous, its taut skin stretched thin over its barely human form. Your eyes dart around in the growing snow-covered darkness. Nothing. Nothing but yourself. Filled with terror and stomach growling greedily, you trek back to your family's camp. The seemingly endless expanse of white is not broken by the usual bright orange blaze of the fire, which is only embers now, clearly having been abandoned hours ago, but instead by dark crimson splashes across the snow. The vision of what lies before you unfolds in shocking waves. At first, your mind attempts to save you the horror of the truth. You see the scene of a bear attack, or some other wild animal, or maybe marauders. But when you spot the neatly stacked pile of charred bones aside the fire pit, some broken, some picked clean from the inside out, it becomes horribly clear. Not only have your wife and children been slaughtered, it was a man that did this, perhaps burning them alive? No, you know what burned bodies look like. The bones have been picked clean after encountering fire. As you try to process the scene, a small whimper breaks your focus. From a nearby tent, you hear a small child's cry. Still without fully registering the tragedy of your dead wife and children, you are overcome with the urgency that the littlest one, your daughter, may still be alive. Throwing open the leather flap of the small tent, your daughter's wide eyes quiver in fear as you look upon her. She can barely mouth the word, no, over and over as a horrible hunger grows within you. And that's when it dawns on you. As you lower your eyes and catch the frozen and dried blood on your very own hands, you slowly return your gaze to the child, knowing what you must do, and yet knowing that your next meal, the one who shakes in fear in front of you, will still do nothing to sate your insatiable hunger. What have you become? Find out on today's episode of Monsters in My Podcast. Welcome to Monsters in My Podcast, Episode 3, The Wendigo. I'm Sean McGee, and I'll be guiding you through the rumors, legends, and histories of everything monstrous from all over the world, through all time and story origin. 
Each week, I'll be doing a deep dive look at one specific monster, exploring not just the tales of encounters with them or the stories from which they began, but also the cultural context, deeper psychological and societal resonance, and always the evolution of how a monster comes to be and how the myths change through time, even living on in popular culture. This week's monster is a unique one, and we'll tap into some particularly curious and disturbing aspects of psychology and culture. The history of the Wendigo will explore issues of psychosis and cultural exchange during a period of tension between indigenous people and colonial invaders. Skin stretched tight and raw over long, giant limbs, mutilated by the brutal cold, lips torn or missing, often a giant and occasionally howling like the cruel northern wind. The Wendigo, or Windigo, or Windigo, or any of the other 30 transliterations and pronunciations, is a malevolent spirit with a heart of ice, sometimes human, sometimes other, or perhaps more accurately, a terrifying phenomenon among the First Nations Algonquin-speaking tribes of eastern Canada, Nova Scotia, northeastern America, and the northern areas of the Great Lakes. These tribes include the Salto, the Cree, the Nascapi, and the Innu. But for purposes of this story, we will refer to the most common English spelling and adaptation, the Wendigo, from the Ojibwa tribe. Tales and encounters vary wildly, and there is even a variation called the Washuge, which uh, is a very different cultural implication, but more on that later. As for the Wendigo, insatiable hunger is the most common theme, often manifesting horrifically as cannibalism. Sometimes encounters describe a monstrous entity preying on human flesh. Other times an individual human transforms into a flesh-eating cannibal themselves. And very often it's a bit of both. In this way, the Wendigo shares common ground with vampires or zombies, in that it's an infectious horror, it's viral, it spreads, it's all-consuming. And that's the key. Just like the vampires and zombies, the Wendigo has an insatiable hunger. It's, in fact, insatiable hunger and greed incarnate. Gluttony and greed taking living form. But like zombies and vampires, the nature of this hunger and the infectiousness are shaped by the culture that spawned them, drawing on fears and taboos local to that region all grounded in the anxieties of, and of scarcity and survival in such a cold, unforgiving northern environment. The Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation, its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones, with its bones pushing out against the skin, its complexion the ash-gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody. Unclean and suffering from separation of the flesh, the Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. So describes Basil H. Johnston, a Chippewa First Nation member and scholar who worked with the Royal Canadian uh, Ontario Museum if not on, in not only preserving the culture and beliefs of the Anishinaabe, but also in reviving them, uh, in the process creating print and audio courses in the Ojibwe language. Johnson's recordings covered a wide variety of beliefs and cultural traditions of the Anishinaabe nation, 
a group of culturally linked indigenous groups of the Northeast Woodlands and Subarctic. And probably his work was more extensive than any other individual, and certainly with more authority and sensitivity than those Jesuit reports of the 1600s. Still, the early Jesuit reports show that the Wendigo phenomenon dates back at least centuries, even if only going by Western recorded sources. In some stories of the Wendigo, a humanoid creature waits near a fishing hole or hunting and trapping grounds to capture humans and eat them. Sometimes their hunger is insatiable specifically because with each being they devour, they grow in size. Therefore, they're never feeling truly full and become ever the more powerful and ravenous. Other more documented cases and anecdotal cases have less to do with an encounter with an outsider Wendigo being than with a member of the tribe becoming possessed by this cannibalistic urge, or turning Wendigo. In some stories or reports, Wendigo must be executed and buried beneath a pile of logs, or even burned. In other cases, however, there are medicine cures for this sickness. And this is where it becomes a bit controversial, as Western authorities and later anthropologists would come to refer to this cannibalistic frenzy as Wendigo psychosis, Indeed, that very term is still in some psychological texts today. But what exactly is Wendigo psychosis? Is it purely anecdotal, or is it a real mental disorder? Is it specifically an Algonquin cultural disease, or is it a cross-cultural madness? We'll explore these questions and more after the break. Today's episode is brought to you by Dare Danger Dan. Would you like to see Medusa riding a seahorse fighting Nikolai Tesla, who's also riding a lightning bolt? How about a literal dog-faced pony soldier? How about a skateboard nurse? Whatever that is. Tom Waits vaping? A Sasquatch shaving? If any of these spooky or ridiculous or both scenarios intrigue you, then you desperately need Dare Danger Dan the weekly live art show where you can suggest topics and situations for Danger Dan to draw on the spot. Catch him live weekly and pitch an idea on twitch.tv slash daredangerdan or watch previous episodes on YouTube at Studios and Instagram at IamDangerDan. Now, back to the Wendigo. Kaki C. Kuchin, or Swift Runner, was a Cree trapper and guide to the Canadian Mounted Police in the late 1800s. Well-liked in his community, he was the father of six children, but when a taste for liquor took him over, he became a rather mean drunk and was eventually fired from his job with the police and banished from his tribe. He left the community and moved into the forest with his wife and children in the summer of 1878. The following winter, Swift Runner stumbled into a local Catholic mission, claiming the rest of his family had starved to death. They provided him shelter, but soon became suspicious of his behavior. He would scream out in the night, having night terrors over and over, and one day attempted to lead a group of children into the woods. He was caught, arrested, and accused of killing his family. Sending a scouting party out to Swift Runner's family campsite, They were greeted by a horrific scene. Human bones, some cracked with the marrow drained, were scattered everywhere. Swift Runner had murdered and eaten his entire family. 
Despite claiming having been possessed by an evil spirit, a Wendigo, the Canadian authorities and the jury convicted and executed Swift Runner, the first legal hanging in the province of Alberta, Canada. The village he had left and the mission were both close enough to where he and his family had made camp that he could have easily ventured to either for food or assistance. There are many other real-life examples of supposed Wendigo possession, alongside these mythic reports, and this led to the psychological and anthropological distinction of what they called Wendigo psychosis. And while the term is still on the books in some spheres today, there's significant pushback, criticism, and controversy around this problematic term. Wendigo psychosis was thought to be a culturally specific disorder, but modern analysis revisits this tendency towards breaking the severe taboo of cannibalism as something less innate to the Algonquin-speaking peoples of North America and Canada, and more to the natural and cultural circumstances of these communities. In other words, nurture more than nature. To shed more light on the cultural framing of the Wendigo, it's interesting to look into the lesser-known Rishouge, an analog to the Wendigo that hails from the stories and legends of the beaver people, or Dunaza. While the Wendigo sickness is seen as a failing, a weakness of human spirit for the man overcome by an all-consuming greed and cannibalistic horror, the same desires for those overtaken by the Washuj of the Dunaza are marked by an emphasis on strength. Professor Robin Ridington studied the Dunaza and collected several anecdotes of Washuj possession. In all the cases uh, of someone turning to Washuj, there was a link to the ancient animal powers individuals had encountered in their youth during the ritual of the spirit journey. The story she uh, was told always invoked broken taboos that led to a person's power growing, uh, not lessening. In the case of one person, a man whose spirit was that of a great ancient frog, when accidentally fed meat with flies in it, became too powerful with the frog spirit and turned to cannibalism. For one with the spider spirit, the sound of tightly drawn strings might trigger this, such as a guitar or a lute playing upon the power of a spider web. For one with an eagle spirit, the flash of a camera or any encounter with electricity could call upon the lightning power of the eagle. Now, these powers are sacred, and these medicine men who have a connection with it are very careful not to draw too much to themselves. Respect for that power of the ancient animal spirits is not just piousness, but in this case, practical among the Dunaza, as too much power can turn a man wishuj. This like-attracts-like logic of spirit and power shows the nuance in these beliefs that a simple diagnosis of psychosis just simply doesn't explain. Unlike Washuj, which appears to be a punishment for the perversion of unchecked spiritual power, the Wendigo is often the result of being disconnected from natural power and community. That kind of severing that the arrival of Western individualism and greed might inspire. Now, outside of native narratives in Western fiction and pop culture, the Wendigo often appears at moments of expansion and frontier or simply highlights the terror of the outsider encountering local taboos they don't understand and often suffering the consequences of callously violating them. Algernon Blackwood is credited with essentially introducing the Wendigo to the Western world of horror fiction, and readers can draw a through line from his short story to H.B. Lovecraft's protege August Derleth, 
who incorporated the Wendigo into the canon of the Cthulhu mythos uh, in the stories The Thing That Walked on the Wind and Ithaca, in turn inspiring the demonic presence found in Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, which of course is a story about the deadly consequences of disrespecting tattoo, sacred grounds, ancient spirits. An interesting piece of trivia is the source of the often reputed imagery of the Wendigo having antlers of some kind. Um, as the equivalent being in Pet Cemetery is described as having ram's horns instead of ears. Now, there's little evidence of horns in native descriptions of the Wendigo or Washuge. Still, this horn version has achieved viral fame in both television shows like Grimm and Supernatural and Charmed, as well as online artwork, perhaps because the actual description is less overtly supernatural or even inhuman. I would argue that the popularity of the horns in modern Western depictions of the Wendigo may be inspired by an unconscious effort to distance humanity from this greedy, selfish monster. Perhaps the greed and selfish nature of the Wendigo, especially for non-native Western audiences, hits a little too close to home. The insatiable hunger, the inability to be content, the greed that drives someone to need to own or possess or consume everything in sight, all driven from some internal lack or imbalance, a feeling of enormous emptiness that can never be filled through loss of connection with community and with nature, the most profound, lonely, and destructive selfishness, it cannot be avoided to see a parallel to some of the darker aspects of Western European culture the culture of the very colonists with whom First Nations people contended, often to their decimation. Margaret Atwood, who has lectured extensively on Canadian First Nations folklore, uh, including the Wendigo, reimagines the creature in her Mad Adam sci-fi trilogy with the character Snowman in her novel Oryx and Crick, which I can't recommend enough. Um, It's set against the backdrop of an apocalypse brought on by genetically modified food. So again, the consumption and flesh aspect. Antonia Byrd's excellent film, Ravenous, animates this metaphor with dark comic brutality, drawing inspiration from the horror of the Donner Party and other survival incidents. This story of an infectious cannibalism spreading through American soldiers in the cold of, the nor- of Northern California during the winter after the Mexican-American War draws on aspects of both Wendigo and Washuge, as the eating of human flesh in this story also fills the men with almost supernatural power temporarily, even reviving them from near death. Being on the very edge of the gold rush frontier, they gleefully wait for more settlers to pass through to become their supper. Ravenous spins a parable directly tying cannibalism of the Wendigo to the unquenchable hunger of Western expansion and the doctrine of manifest destiny. In fact, one character even monologues about the inevitability of cannibalism in colonialism. In this current moment in American history, this form of Wendigo sickness seems more relevant and viral than ever. On this note, I will conclude with the words of a writer for the Mohawk Nation News who sums it up pretty effectively and cuttingly. The Wendigo is sick because it's cut off from its roots. It's a ghost with a heart of ice. It eats everything in sight. Its hunger knows no bounds. When there's nothing left to eat, it starves to death. 
When it sees something, it wants to own it. No one else can have anything. The illness feeds on a spiritual void. Canada and U.S. are presently in an advanced stage of the Wendigo psychosis. The Mohawks call this Owista disease. Our theme music is by the incredible Dan Gross of Drunk History fame. Sound effects and ambiance are by yours truly. And promotional art by the magnificently monstrous Danger Dan Dubois. It really helps if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Uh, Go ahead and rate the show. That's always greatly appreciated. But leaving a review is the stuff of true legends. Uh, You can also check us out at Monsters in My Podcast on Instagram. And if you're feeling generous, check us out on Patreon. Uh, We just got it up, and there will be more exclusive content for subscribers coming, including bonus episodes and monstrous merch featuring Danger Dan's awesome artwork. Thank you for listening. Before we go, speaking of cannibals, next episode we'll be staying out in the cold again, heading to the frozen tundra and dark forests of Mother Russia to meet, well, Mother Russia, a.k.a. the Witch of the Woods, who craves Russian blood as she stalks about in her house on a giant chicken leg or flies furiously around in her mortar wielding her club-like pestle. A personal favorite of mine, Baba Yaga. Join us next time on Monsters in My Podcast. <laughs>